Hello, I'm Michael Moody, and welcome to the Elements of Being podcast, where I dissect and explore the minds and habits of filmmakers, writers, and industry icons. Essentially, we learn what makes them flip the switch to achieve great feats, goals, and milestones. And it's a chance to geek out over the psychology behind human behavior. In today's episode, I interviewed the eclectic Laura Green. She's a community and clinical mental health advocate and a Midwest spirits specialist for Wimbo, a unique combination that gave us our first case study on this podcast. Laura integrates her clinical and academic experiences into her work in beverage by directing her research and professional focus towards spirits education, the mental health and wellness of food and beverage professionals, and the holistic health of the beverage industry. Laura's current research hones in on the relationship of mental health issues, stress, burnout, and substance abuse, and organizational support in an effort to develop systems of proactive intervention and ongoing support within the hospitality sector. In our time together, this former Atlantic-signed I Fight Dragons keyboardist unraveled the many underlying influences on our behaviors and the effect of the work environment on our mental health. Not surprising, your industry may be facing some of the same prevailing behind-the-scenes challenges as hospitality professionals. Specifically, we examine the fears of change in a system with pre-existing social norms and rules and the chicken-or-the-egg argument in the workplace. We also brought down how we continue to put ourselves in the same dysfunctional position over and over how to replace our wired coping behaviors, as well as recognize the power dynamic in our professional and personal relationships. Without a doubt, we indulge in several thought-provoking, perhaps controversial perspectives on why this occurs. So with this being said, let's jump in. Laura, thanks for sharing the table with me today. Oh, I'm happy to be here. So I've spent the last few days reflecting on the food and drink industry and what I've learned about you. And normally I point much of my thinking to how a person flips a switch to achieve success. But today I wanted to use the food and drink industry as a case study for the underlying influences on a person's success or self-destructive tendencies. I'm not sure everyone listening can relate to being a server, bartender, cook, chef, manager, or owner in the industry, but I believe every one of us is facing some of the same challenges day to day. So let's be honest, the the culture in Chicago normally revolves around food and drinks. One of the reasons why the city is so great, it offers some of the best restaurants in the world, which my wife and I take advantage of. In fact, when we explore other cities, it's always one of the first things that we we look for. I worked in restaurants in my early 20s, and my wife has been an event sales manager in Chicago restaurants for nearly 15 years. Many of my clients are are no different in their interests with food, and they typically struggle in these environments or experiences while pursuing a health goal. What do you do, though, when you're a bartender who wants to make the same changes as my clients, but you can't remove yourself? You're constantly enticed or triggered, and there's very little escape. I imagine that struggle reaches pretty high levels, as you have seen, I'm sure. So I hope we can explore this together today. But first, I'd love for you to share what initially lured you into the food and drink industry. Um, So I started as a server at a sushi restaurant in Homewood, Illinois, when I was 17 years old. I was there for like a month. And yeah, it's not, I, but I didn't catch the bug. I quite, I quite hated it. Um, <laughs> and I really disliked it. And then I moved into the city to go to school. I studied musical theater in undergrad mm-hmm. um, and I needed a job. So I got a job as a busser at the American Girl Place Cafe and I still hated it. Like, I mean, I liked the, <laughs> you know, I liked the people I worked with, you know, um, and it was a steady enough paycheck and, I could work a double shift on the weekend and then go to school during the week and, you know, have enough to spend all my money on clothes. But um, (laughs) so, so bad. But that started me off in a chain of jobs in hospitality because 
it was something that I knew, you know, studying musical theater as much as I did gain a lot of really fantastic skills. It's really hard to apply those skills until you really figure out who you are and what you want to do. So in the meantime, I was just really good at restaurants. So graduated from undergrad, got a job as a server at like PJ Clark's, um, moved over to Elephant and Castle, was working as an actor, but they were all very like transient situations, you know, so just working in the industry to make money and then do what I wanted to do, which was be an actor and a musician. So (laughs) this sounds terrible, but like the big break happened, if you will. And I was in a rock band that we signed to Atlantic Records. Wow. Yep. That was a whole thing that I did once in my youth. (laughs) (laughs) And what was the name? Oh gosh. It was called I Fight Dragons. Um, it was, the, it was so nerdy. <laughs> I, you were I, signed, which. Yeah, we signed to Atlantic. So yeah, like, it was not like. Not many people could say this. Yeah. And you know, my, I did two tours with them and then it ended in a big fiery and dramatic ball of flame. Ironically. Yep. <laughs> yep. And, um, but I spent a lot of time in a tour bus with, you know, six, seven other people, you know, I will share about that because it does relate to the food and beverage industry. We were in such close contact with each other. And, you know, every problem that we had, the volume turned up on it because we were in such close proximity. Mm. And that was something that as we ended, as I ended in a big fiery ball of flame that I reflected on a lot, um, my my mental health wasn't in a very good place. Um, Started seeing a therapist this is the this is the career chaos coming in, right? Mm-hmm. After that ended, I posted on Facebook, I need a job. And my buddy was like, come bartend. And I'm like, no, <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> like, I don't want to. Going back to what you left. <clears throat> exactly. And I really didn't want to. And he's like, just come and interview with us. Come talk to us. This isn't the bartending that you know. And I was like, fine. And I was desperate. I had like 17 cents in my bank account. And I went and I met with them and they started talking about fresh juices and I said I didn't like gin, but then I tasted like these five gins that were so different. And I was like, oh, this one tastes mushroomy, which I now know is like heavy Angelica was a, you know, like, yeah. So I really started to dive into bar and hospitality in a very, very different way than what I had before. And that started my career in craft bartending. But it was just so unhealthy. And I would stay out every night and just spend all of my money and drink so much get home i think there was i just saw a memory on facebook that said it was a post that said like i've waken up next to more half-eaten burritos than people this year (laughs) so that kind of gives you an idea what my life looked like (laughs) and so i had these moments that i was like i really love this industry i love what i do this is a lot of fun i'm fascinated by it but i can't sustain this So I started to look at going back to school. So then I'll hearken back to my fascination with the small group dynamics of my band living in a tour bus and my and how much I had benefited from counseling after my mental health had declined after being in that band. And I started looking into psychology. I was initially very interested in social psychology and industrial organizational psychology. But at the end of the day, what I really wanted to do was help people. So I went back to school in 2013 at DePaul University here in Chicago and studied clinical and community mental health counseling. And on, on that note, because it, I, I feel like from there, then we, we really go on a few different paths mm-hmm. in terms of your role in the industry yep. now and uh, some of the things that you've noticed, because obviously going through that training, it probably amplified a lot of those problems in the industry and uh, probably changed the experience uh, as a whole, without a doubt. But you, you mentioned a couple of things that are worth mentioning mm-hmm. uh, about the industry as a whole, at least from my perspective, even though I was part of it as a server at one time, I did see many people working in the industry as a step before starting their career. Mm-hmm. And not everyone enjoyed that experience, but it was easy to get a job in a restaurant or a bar to make ends meet. And you mentioned earlier, even though you were dissatisfied with the experiences, you had still continued to uh, to work at one restaurant or another. And what parts of those experiences did you dislike? That's a really good question. Um, I did not like 
guests. <laughs> no, I should, no. I should take that back. I um, hated well, people. It's oh, I kind of hated people, but I didn't hate people. I what I if I you know reflect now on what I really did dislike about the guests that would come into our restaurants is the relationship between them and the server, not me as a human being, but as a server. Like there's a dehumanization that happens mm. a lot. And there's a lot that contributes to that. There's a long history of dehumanization within the hospitality industry that we can trace back through the ugliest parts of American history with slavery and exploitation of human beings. Um, that's a whole, probably whole other podcast, but it's this ingrained cultural thing that, you know, servers and bartenders and bussers are a little bit less than, you know, there's mm -hmm. stigmas of, um, you know, they messed up their career or they're shining stars that just haven't emerged yet. Like mm -hmm. people would ask me before I went back to school, like, oh, are you, what's your real job? Or are you going back to school? Or are you in school? And I would be like, no, this is my job and I like my job. Mm -hmm. But you can't help but internalize those things as well. You know, you go home for family holidays and are you still a bartender? Like people internalize that. So I didn't like that. You know, I don't think at the time I could have articulated that, but mm -hmm. it's something that I see now too in people all the time mm -hmm. that they're kind of carrying that. And it also creates a, a, a dicey relationship between the guest and somebody in the hot, the guest and the hospitality person within a hospitality standpoint in a power dynamic that gets very challenging as well. It's interesting that it's not perceived as the server as the host, mm -hmm. uh, but a server as a, a servant in some yeah. sense. Yeah. And uh, it, it seems like a gross exaggeration uh, of this, but... If you break it down the way you have, you see many examples of this mm -hmm. across all parts of the hospitality industry. And it's even ingrained within the hospitality industry. So someone in one position may be more humanized than someone in another. Like the bartender has a certain level of control, whereas the barback doesn't. The the support, the floor support doesn't, you know, um, the line cook, the dishwasher, you know, these these are positions that are often invisible. But overall, I would say in the hospitality industry, the human component is invisible. Like we have our celebrity chefs, but, you know, people snapping their fingers at you or treating you like a human vending machine, you know, <laughs> or a, yeah, a drinks, a drinks vending machine. It does start to wear on you. I think the shift happened for me when I started working for restaurants that were more, oh, how do I say this carefully? were more, I guess, rooted in hospitality instead of transient work mm. because also management treats folks different. And a mm. lot of restaurants capitalize off of that transient nature because they don't have to pay you very much. They can let you go easily. You know, there's, there's a lot there. And that's the structural cultural bit too that's problematic within this space. And you mentioned some of your, your personal uh, struggles this transition back after the the band had broken up mm -hmm. or you had moved on from that? I saw it as a failure and that sucks. You know, I saw it as like, oh man, I've, I'm back here. And instead of seeing it as an opportunity to do something else and new and wonderful, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of that internalized stigma. Yeah. Just since you did mention the music, is this still a part of your life today or... Uh, have you pushed that behind you and now have focused on other things? I still love music. My relationship with music was really com complicated for a while. Like I still have like an actual piano in my house and, um, but I don't perform. Well, sometimes my friends can coerce me into performing with them, but it takes, <laughs> <laughs> it takes a very special person for me to get up on stage anymore with them. But yeah, it's, you know, I think if I had more time, maybe I would explore it more, but Time is already probably my most precious commodity in my <laughs> life right now. Well, and you have a you have a, a newer focus with what you do as a community and clinical mental health counselor. What do you think was the defining moment that actually led to that decision to to go to school and to pursue this new career path? Were there any particular experiences that pushed this need 
I would say I just how much I benefited from therapy and how how much I could have recognizing how much I could have protected myself from a lot of things that I experienced had I gone to therapy prior. So like preventative care, you know, the reflecting on that and wanting to share that with people. Yeah, that definitely informed it. But I also wanted a more, I don't want to say normal life because that's not fair or true, but I wanted something that I could be a little bit more grounded and structured. And at the time, I didn't think I could have that working in hospitality. I don't think that's so true anymore. Like I have that now, but at the time I I really didn't see a way to achieve that. So mm. a lot of things, you know, went into it, but really I just was so fascinated by behavior and brain. I was specifically fascinated by how the group impacts the individual and how the individual impacts the group, group dynamics, um, in-group, out-group norms and how that affects an individual's mental health and identity. Mm. So yeah, it's, I mean, it still fascinates me. I spend my Saturdays reading peer reviewed articles from the American Counseling <laughs> Association. <laughs> like, Which I assume most people don't do. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not, uh, yeah, that, I'm not too far from uh, uh, sharing some of those same truths. It, you know, at times I, I find myself digging in. And perhaps, like you in many ways, there, there's a curiosity about our human nature and the effect of, of society on the individual and the individual on the society. As you're going through this training, were there any particular incidents uh, that, that push you in, down this path? Because most people going into uh, school for psychology kind of go in with a general sense of what they want to do, uh, but they haven't actually decided what path they want to go. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I mean, the reality is I went back to school to become a therapist to not be in this industry anymore. So I'll jump a little bit ahead and just say when I graduated and took a job back in the industry, my family and friends were like, what? <laughs> like, are you serious? <laughs> you just spent four years full time. I had this massive clinical internship that I did. Um, like my intention was like, I was interested in career, um, and career decision-making processes. And so I was, I'm still on that path for sure. And I don't want to discount that, but when I was in school, so like from 2013 to 2017, in that time, I went from being a bartender to a manager to, you know, and I, I moved through restaurants and each, each job got a little bit more high profile. And I started becoming quite expert, like relatively in what I was doing. I fell in love with it. The bar community was and is so near and dear to my heart that mm. I started kind of freaking out of like, oh my God, am I really leaving this? You know, and mm. then you have the fear of change. Um, and I had really started accepting that that's what it was going to look like. It wasn't until my clinical year, I was working at a community counseling agency here in Chicago with children and adults of low socioeconomic status. Um, a lot of adults coming out of homelessness, dealing with substance use issues, stemming from childhood trauma. That's a very common pattern that we see. Um, and then of course, a lot of kids and I miss my kids all the time, but huh, no, I really miss them. But, yeah. um, I, had someone reach out and they were like, so-and-so is writing an article about substance abuse in the industry and they need a quote. And I was like, oh yeah, I got them. Like have them send me some questions. And they sent me four questions and they were all the right questions. They just required so much more answer than a soundbite as a quote mm -hmm. in an article. And I had this moment that I'm like, this would be really irresponsible of me to just answer it in a sentence because it's so complex. So then the person writing it was like, well, why don't you just, you should write an article. And I was like, okay. And it ended up being this 3,500 word monster. <laughs> and I just sort of spewed out like, this is all I see within the industry. This is, this is, this is what's happening to us. This is the very bare bones of what's happening to us. And I just had this moment of like, oh, this is my career this is what I can contribute. And so it's, I, I fondly look back on the moment where it was like, 
every reason I had to leave the industry and go back to school was actually all the reasons that I stayed. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's, I did have moments in terms of like, since because of the nature of this co- podcast, I think this is important to share. I had to have some serious sit downs with myself to be like, are you staying here because it's comfortable? Hmm. Are you staying here because this is where you have already been thriving hmm. or are you staying here because this is really what you want to do? And that was definitely, um, there were a lot of tears, you know, cause at the same time I had committed to something to being a therapist and to working in an office setting and clients and everything. And then to not do that was also very scary, mm-hmm. you know, and there's a lot of self judgment in that. Like, what does that say about me? I can say quite firmly two years later, like, Almost three years later, I do not regret a thing and I made the right decision. But I had to take that time with myself to really challenge myself of like, is this what you want truly? Is this what's best for you? And so how long did you have to sit down with these questions before you finally decided? I would say about four months. And I also hiked up Pikes Peak in Colorado at the same time. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I took, it was it was that trip that I was like, okay, I'm starting to see this clearly, like getting out of the environment that I was in, connecting with myself. By the time you hit, what is it, 12,000 feet, there's not enough oxygen for you to talk to your friends anyway. So you're caught in your head, you know, and very much forced to confront yourself. So mm. it was within that time in particular that I, I, I would frame it now as I was able to build the courage to do what I wanted. Wow. What were some of the things that you saw in the industry that were so worrisome to you? Oh, so a lot of them I also saw in myself, Mm. um, which was especially worrisome, (laughs) you know, (laughs) because it's not just you like wagging your finger at somebody else being like, you know, you're not you're not living healthily or you're Mm. not working out like I was participating. So. You know, that makes actually the work that I do sometimes challenging is because I am in it. And sometimes I need like breaks just for my own health. But, oh, some of the things, the habitual going out after work, like there's this energy, this energy arc that happens behind the bar that you get hit. And then you kind of like celebrate that you got hit with this massive rush And then you're breaking down and you're tired and then the shift ends and you clock out and there's this energy surge that you're Mm. with with all of your colleagues. And I use the word colleague very intentionally now because coworkers sort of minimizes the work that we do. Like Mm -hmm. these are your colleagues in a professional setting. We would just go out and I'd be like, I want to have one. And everyone would be like, yes, one. We all just want (laughs) one. And then Next thing I know, it's one o'clock in the afternoon. I have to check my phone for my lift receipt to know even where I was. (laughs) I'm texting the bartender, did I tip you? And it was just like blackout. And then I have to be at work in three hours. Mm -hmm. So I can't go grocery shopping. I can't go to the gym, you know, and it's getting caught in that cycle. And it was realizing that I was getting caught in that cycle. The scary thing about that is... If I were, and when I eventually did for myself break that cycle, it also means that I'm ostracizing myself from that community because I'm not participating in those clockwork habits, Mm. you know? So I had to kind of say goodbye to not just the behavior, but those, the nature of those relationships. You mentioned about some of these habits and... It makes me think of the chicken or the egg argument. Do the innate personalities of the staff paired with the demands and the environment ultimately lead to the status of mental health or physical health or whatever challenges they face? Or does the demand and the environment foster the self-destructive habits that ultimately lead to their compromised mental health? What do you think it, does this industry make the person uh, based on these demands or are there, does it attract certain personalities? So I'm so into this question. <laughs> I'm so into this question because I think it's, it's, it's complex and it's a combination of the two. On one hand, 
the environment certainly is going to impact the decisions that individuals and groups are making, right? So like, if you think about a plant, you know, um, if a plant's sick, I mean, maybe some people blame the plant, but that's not really taking responsibility for that house <laughs> plant, right? Um, but you move it. If it outgrows a pot, you repot it. If it starts to brown around the leaves, you assess like, am I overwatering? Am I underwatering? You know, it's you don't really point the finger at the plant. You change its environment. Mm. So that's something to consider within the context of how I'm answering this question. On the other hand, people, in terms of what they're, I'm taking broad strokes here, so take it as that, but people in terms of their behavior and environment are going to choose the past of, path of least resistance. Mm. That's not a bad thing. That's a human thing. We do that cognitively, behaviorally, like, you know, we are living and breathing organisms who want to whose instincts are to act efficiently. It's a survival thing, right? So if you have behavioral patterns that help you to cope through your life or to live in a way that's comfortable because you're accustomed to it, you're going to seek out environments that allow you to keep doing that. Mm. We see that in our romantic relationships, our friendships. We see that in our familial patterns. Um, so those two things being said, I think that there are some people who stay in this industry because it allows them to behave a certain way without consequence. Hmm. And then I think that there are people who fall victim to the culture of this industry. And there's definitely an intersection. Um, but and then there are also extremes. I'll share this that when I when I was working with my clients in my clinical internship, a lot of them were just teetering out of homelessness. They were at that place where they could either go back to being homeless or finding housing, right? So they were teetering. And as a young clinician, I was like, oh, man, I don't know quite how to deal with this. So when I was at, um, I was at the American Counseling Association conference that year in San Francisco, and there was one seminar about substance use and people who were experiencing homelessness. <laughs> and I'm sitting there in this seminar and she's talking about how there are certain rules of the homeless community that people are comfortable with. So they stay in it. Right. Mm -hmm. So alcohol and other substances like drugs are currency. You don't have to get up and go to work every day, but there are still rules within that small social community be regardless of whether they're homeless or not, that people will stick to. And those rules are rules that they know. Hmm. So they stay there. Um, same thing with like the movement in and out of um, people being incarcerated and homelessness. These are rules that they know and they can abide by and live within without making any tremendous changes. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh man, that's the hospitality of the community. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like having this internal freak out because... I knew that I was also complicit in that, complicit mm -hmm. in that, excuse me. And then she said, when she started diving in a little bit more to the alcohol and substances used as currency, I was like, oh, snap, that is us. Like we mm -hmm. share, I don't, but the thing that I say when I present about substance use within the industry is you don't pour shots for people that you don't like. You don't give free drinks to people you don't like. So then we have this issue where, we use alcohol as a vehicle to share our love for each other. Hmm. And that is a hard thing to separate because it, I, I feel good when people send me a shot. Like I, that makes me feel acknowledged. That makes me feel cared for. Um, it makes me feel special at the same time. It also means that I shouldn't be getting on my bicycle or into my car. It means I'll probably lose a few hours in the morning if I keep going that way. So in terms of behavioral restructuring, we need to find another way to share our love for each other. And But those are hard things to break hmm. because the, re the receipt of that also is like, it feels good, not just the giving. So it's, oh, it's a big knot to be unraveled. Yeah, and this bleeds into a main focus of yours, which is the change of the culture in the hospitality industry. 
what do you think steps what steps are needed in order to change the structure that has been reinforced for many years? <laughs> so as you started asking me this question in my brain, I said, burn it all down. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I know that that's not really the answer, but it is, I mean, there's just, there's so much working against changing such a massive culture, such a massive machine that sometimes I am like, oh my God, just burn it all down. But um, <laughs> <laughs> like, but you can't really do that. In the past two years or so, two and a half years now, no, year and a half, I don't know, we're where are we? 2020? I'll say this. Ever since Anthony Bourdain died is when it really started shifting. Mm. And up until then, I started doing this work about, you know, Q4 of 2016. So there were a few years that I felt like I was, you know, screaming into the void. But then Anthony Bourdain died. And I think so many people were shook by that. And they were shook because, this is my theory on that, that so many folks so respected him and saw themselves in him that when he died, they also saw themselves in that. And mm. I think that was very scary. And that's when people really started listening and started talking. And it's, you know, the conversation started shifting to mental health. It's not that issues with substance use and suicide were not present before that. It's just we weren't talking about it as much. Also, as the cocktail revolution happened and people started seeing working in hospitality, celebrity chefs, like people had so many opportunities. It moved from a transient career into a career. It meant that people weren't planning on escaping, but we also weren't changing our behavior to create longevity mm. with that either. So... Yeah, in terms of changing the culture, I mean, conversation is certainly the beginning. In therapy, we talk about um, the stages stages of behavioral change. There's like pre-contemplation, contemplation, action, maintenance. I think I'm missing one. I hope none of my professors are listening to this. <laughs> I hope <laughs> but, they are. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would be well. Yeah, but I I see us for a long time. I saw us in pre-contemplation. I think right now the industry is within contemplation and action. That's a funny place to be because if half the folks are in action and the other half are in contemplation, and there's a few stragglers still in mm. pre-contemplation, it does make it challenging to usher change. But we are on our way. But right now what I see is a lot of conversations around this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. And we're just now starting to move into pieces of like, how do we change this? How do we address organizational change um, within our bars and restaurants and hotels and distilleries and wineries and all of that, breweries? The next step I see is going to be creating systems within bars and restaurants and all of those other venues that support the mental health and well-being of individuals who work there. Because right now, that doesn't quite exist the way that it needs to. There's something you mentioned in one of your, your articles, and the quote is, so many of us are actively trying to break this cycle. Then we get angry at ourselves when it doesn't work out. And more often than not, we internalize that failure. I think a lot of people could relate to that. Mm -hmm. and and the question is, how can you break the cycle in an environment that encourages the very thing you might need to minimize when your identity is linked to so much of what you provide and what you serve to people? It almost seems like if you're diminishing that in any way or trying to steer away from it, you're almost disconnecting from your own identity. Mm -hmm. You're in this industry and you're surrounded by it and you're asked to, to remove it in order to take this step. Because most of the time when you're, especially with substance abuse, uh, it can be complete removal and sometimes complete separation, but you depend on this income. Right. You depend on the income and then you depend on the community that's surrounding the work as well, right? So it makes it really hard hard to separate yourself. And, you know, something that we don't talk about often as a society in terms of changing behavior is grieving 
the behavior that we're giving up, you know, grieving our late night burritos, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, saying goodbye it's to a that. Real thing. It is a real thing. Like, you know, grieving our late night burritos, grieving the post shift binge, mm. um, grieving sleeping in every day, you know, grieving not working out. You know, like there's any any behavior that we change, there is a grief process that comes with that. Also, another thing with changing behavior is that you can't just quit something without any sort of a support there in place. So, so something that I did, and this was when I was in my clinical work, I was working as a therapist in my clinical internship. I was managing a bar. I was managing, managing a cocktail program. Um, and I saw that it was going to be really, really easy to spiral out of control and cope with the amount of work that I was doing by drinking a bunch and everything. So I recognized that I needed to replace those coping mechanisms of drinking and stuff with something else. And so what I did was developed, because there was structure to that, like there was a schedule to that. So I had to create a new schedule, a new structure. So, and this was extreme. I, I mean you're the trainer. So I, I, you know, I wouldn't, <laughs> this is not my clinical advice. This is something that worked for me. I have been a cyclist for many, many, many years and riding my bike long distances is a very normal thing for me. It's something I've been doing for over two decades now. So wow. I signed up for a half Ironman and I spent my entire clinical internship training for a half Ironman. And I did it. I ran it the day after I graduated. So it was very emotional. Um, but it provided structure in my world. And Mm. I knew that I couldn't stay out drinking if I had to be up at 6am to go for a six mile run and then see clients at 9am. You know, I also Mm -hmm. couldn't show up to see clients who are dealing with substance use issues hungover. So there were high stakes to sticking to the schedule that I had put in place. But I share that because you can't just take away drinking and expect yourself to succeed in your sobriety or even your moderation without replacing that coping mechanism with something else. Mm. That comes often in the form of community support. So, I mean, people are entitled to explore their relationship with whatever behavior it is that they're trying to change on their own if they want. But you're going to find more success if you have at least one confidant. You know, Mm -hmm. it's where therapy is really helpful. I'm sure as a trainer, you have a lot of people confiding a lot in you too. Absolutely. Um, So having that community support, but also having those areas of accountability are really, really important to creating and succeeding in that change. Another thing that I found too is when I started changing my patterns, other people that I worked with started changing their patterns. It was really exciting because I did that triathlon. I was working for Stephanie Izard and I did that. And then I left and I came to work for Winebow. And I think it was just this past year, I saw an entire goat group. Like there were a a (laughs) bunch of bartenders from the goats, from like Girl and the Goat and Little Goat and um, Cabra. And Stephanie all did the the Chicago triathlon. And I'm not saying I'm responsible for that, (laughs) but if I am, you're welcome. Um, (laughs) But There is a shift. If people see that it's possible, they're more likely to be able to get on board with that. Because I think inherently people want to be healthier, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, I haven't shared this before, but when I worked at Be Sure 110, I was simultaneously beginning my personal training business. Mm -hmm. And it began with training one server. And I ended up, after seven months, training eight yeah. And so there is something to say about this, you know, planting the seed, mm-hmm. and it can be infectious. So certainly, if there are examples of this built into the structure, or at least promoted by management, you hope that it would take off. I wonder, though, on that note, what are some of the things that owners or management could do to kind of steer this this new culture? Oh, that is a, that's this, this question right here is really where my work is turning. So managing from a place of empathy is a huge one. So someone shows up late to work and they're hungover, right? 
it's not super awesome that they showed up hungover. Like <laughs> that's not cool. They're late. There's probably a lot of prep to do. They've essentially set the entire course of the shift off in a way that's not going to be, it's going to be harder to recover from as opposed to if they showed up 15 minutes early and were sipping on their coffee and maybe on their phone playing, mm -hmm. I don't know, wordscapes or whatever, and then starting their shift and everything's in place and they're calm. And, you know, so as a manager, you have options of how to handle that. On one hand, you can be like, hey, you've messed up the whole shift. You can, you know, chastise them. You can reprimand them and mm -hmm. all of that stuff. Is that going to create change though? Or is that person going to walk away a little bit more embittered, um, mm -hmm. you know, screw the man type feelings or I hate this job or whatever? Managing from a place of empathy of like, do you see how, do you see what's happening here yeah. to the person? Like, do you see what the the chain reaction is going to be as a result? What can we do to work together so that this doesn't happen again? You know, those those are very... Those <laughs> managing from empathy is free, you know, like you don't need any sort of like monetary resources to make that happen. It just takes some thinking on how do people change. Being mindful that employees are human beings too. So not scheduling people in clopens, allowing only eight hours of sleep or less between shifts is cruel. And a lot of people then turn to, well, I'm going to stay up all night. Or I'm going to go drinking and I only need three hours and I'm going to work the brunch shift and then I'm going to sleep for the rest of the day. And that's not productive either. Being mindful of what people's lives look like. And if someone requests off, do what you can to give it to them. And if you can't give it to them, have a conversation of this is why it's not happening. Like those little things, again, are all free and make a tremendous difference in the workplace. If someone reports sexism, if someone reports racism, have a plan in place to do something about that. Like what are our operating procedures when someone reports that this server said this to this server? Like what do we what do we do about that? And then stick to that plan, no matter who it is. Like all of those things, again, are free, but create a healthier workplace and people are more likely to stay. They're less transient. Um, they feel more appreciated. Their perceived organiz organizational support is higher. Their their workplace self-esteem is higher and they want more buy-in if they feel like they're cared for. And I can get on and on about how I'd like to see more restaurant employees have health insurance, but I also recognize there are a lot of barriers to that as mm -hmm. well. Very like politically structured barriers that are hard to overcome. But in the meantime, like don't schedule people to Clopin. <laughs> it's yeah. not, well, it break be hard. that down what exactly that means for people who aren't familiar oh, for with sure. the industry. I'm jargoning. Um, so a Clopin is when you close the restaurant and then you open the restaurant the next morning. So there's not a lot of in between time in my position right now. I have the luxury that I'm generally nine to five or sometimes like 10 to seven, sometimes nine to nine, like, you know, mm -hmm. but at least I know I'm going to have enough time to go home and decompress, get a good night's sleep, wake up, maybe work out a little bit and start my day again. Restaurant folk who are clopening or who are working 17 hours a day, like four days in a row, they don't have that. I almost called it a luxury, but it's not a luxury. It's inhumane to be treating people sure. like that. But then that ties back into people internalizing these stigmas and also wearing that kind of mistreatment as a badge of honor. Hmm. And I think that's a coping mechanism to like not really acknowledge how poorly you're being treated. Sure, sure. You know, yeah. so that's a clopin. It's the worst, <laughs> the worst. Well, you, you mentioned about sexism, racism, of mm -hmm. course, substance abuse, which are all pervading issues in the food and drink industry. Why do you think these issues have been largely ignored in this industry when they are such a present focus in others? Oh, I think that has to do with, again, the public's perception of what, of hospitality. It, I mean, it's, it's, inv it's an invisible career in a way. It's, it's one of the careers that I would, I and, you know, other folk, of course, would consider fringe careers, that they're on the fringe of society are they're essential to our society being what it is and functioning the way it and functioning the way that it is but they're invisible they're on the periphery other industries like this would be folks who freelance actors musicians any real creative 
you know, who's working not con- not a conventional like doctor, lawyer, teacher job. It's just sort of forgotten in a way. You look at different industries that are maybe a little bit more overtly public facing. And I say that carefully because like hospitality is the most public facing, Absolutely. right? But it's still invisible. It's not glamorous when it's functional. Like people don't watch kitchen heaven. They watch kitchen nightmares, <laughs> you know, like no one. Well, I do. I like clean stainless steel and a functioning kitchen, but you know, someone from middle America, Iowa isn't really as interested in that bar rescue. God, ugh. I think that These conversations are definitely happening within the industry, but they haven't reached outside of the industry. There have been a few things here and there. I think the New York Times did this whole like video segment that featured a few Chicago chefs and beverage folk that detailed sort of the human portion of what it's like to be within this industry Mm -hmm. um, and the mental health struggles around that. So it's making its way, but it's again, it's not glamorous. So I don't know that people outside of the industry are investing in it. That being said, though, the conversations that are happening within the industry are tremendous and really something. And people are getting into the nitty gritty of power dynamics that like sexism, ageism, racism, you know, general <laughs> marginalization of large swaths of people are happening mm-hmm. because there are certain people who are in power and benefit from that power who benefit from exploiting people, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, uh, it's, those are hard things to break because power is power. So, but again, the more you have these conversations and the more you challenge things like you came in late, hungover, you're fired. That's how incremental change starts to happen. Do you think the the challenges are unique to the U.S. or would we find similar challenges in other cities across the world? Well, so that's something that I'm exploring right now. <laughs> right. I, yeah. So um, I am conducting research right now about stress, burnout, and substance use. Within the hospitality industry, I'm releasing this massive survey that I've been working on for a long time. I wanted this to happen a long time ago, but it takes a while. I'm releasing it in the United States, and then I'm releasing it in the the UK after. I uh, there's a tipping problem in terms, and when I say tipping, I mean like gratuity, and the way that pay is structured within our industry again creates a power imbalance between mm. not just the guest and the hospitality professional but also the employer and the hospitality professional. Because if the employer doesn't have to pay them, they don't really have to invest in them either. So Mm. that's a problem. And that's something that I'm really super into exploring a little bit more. And the debate on when whether people should be tipped or not is a raging debate. It's And it gets heated and people are very... There's like this little middle ground that people kind of move back and forth, but really people are polarized in it. All the data that I find points to tips are a problem. We look at craft cocktail culture and how we can make a lot of money depending on where we work. But there are so many other hospitality folk throughout the entire country that don't have a situation that they're being tipped on $13 drinks, $14 drinks. Mm. So and I take it as my responsibility as a person in the position that I am to account for all of those people. This is our system in the U.S. Mm-hmm. We know other countries don't depend on a tip system as much. So do you find that there is a more positive, healthier environment in those countries? I will say from what I have learned and observed and like the folks who I talk to, especially in the U.K. and Amsterdam and, and other U- European countries, is they are farther along in taking actionable steps in creating healthier workplace environments. Now, I don't know if that is because of a tipped system. I'm hoping to have more definitive data around that like in the next few years. But there's something pointing those cultures a little bit quicker into the direction of being healthier. They're, from what I've found, more open-minded already to creating healthier workplaces for people. Well, what an interesting perspective to tie to to something that is such a big part of our society, mm-hmm. you know, food and drink restaurants, especially being Lithuanian, German and Irish and Macedonian. And really my life has revolved around food and drink mm-hmm. and we've been going to restaurants and since we were young and so it, it is part of, uh, it seems like, the nature of a family in one form or another. And 
there are serious issues that, that mm-hmm. we have to look at and I'm pleased and, and feel fortunate enough to, to have met you and, and to know that you're, you're certainly doing something about is something that, that is dear to me and part of my experience and still is, especially mm-hmm. with my wife working in the industry. So thank you for everything that you've been doing. It's, it's my pleasure. It's, it really does fascinate me. It, it, it is a joy to do this work. I mean, the subject matter isn't super joyful, but it does really feel wonderful to be helping my community. And I'm really happy that I'm in a community that allows me to do the work holistically and look at it from all these different perspectives, not just from substance abuse, but also organizationally and looking at the larger social system. So thank you for the space to, you know, share that with people too. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So a couple of closing questions. And uh, as you know, I have a two and a half year old son, Preston, and I'm just wondering, what is one lesson that you would share with him? It's okay to change your mind. No decision is forever. And there's, there is something to, there is certainly something to following through, but it is okay to change your mind if that is truly what's best for you. All right. A good lesson for everyone. Where can people find you to learn more about you? Where can they go to say hi? Or is there anything that you'd like to tell them to check out in particular? Mm, I am mostly on Instagram. My personal Instagram is at laura.louise.green. If you want to learn more about what I'm doing, there is a website that I'm launching called healthypoor.org. It's healthy, like H-E-A-L-T-H-Y, then poor as in P-O-U-R. Dot org And that you can, right now it's just a landing page where you can sign up for more information about like the survey that I'm releasing or any information of like the website's launching. That's where you'll be able to find a little bit more nitty gritty information about what is happening within the industry, highlighting certain other organizations that are doing good work, just more resources that are maybe more hyper local to where people are throughout the country and the world. If you are a cocktail enthusiast, Tales of the Cocktail is awesome. There's a lot of things. Uh, Resistance Served is a educational convention that happens in New Orleans every year that really explores the history of inequality on multiple levels, but specifically, um, you know, the the roots in slavery and racism around the industry stuff. Yeah, there are more and more resources coming out about these things, but mostly I encourage people just to talk to their bartenders and get to know their servers and be kind, you know, and if they're getting crushed in the service, well, maybe don't be like, what are you into? But like, (laughs) you know, start to challenge your own thinking about how, what your relationship with the folks who are serving you, your drinks and food and all of that, what that relationship looks like. Yeah. And I think it's good advice uh, for anyone that you have an interaction with. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah. Very good. Well, thank you again for your time today. Thank you. And uh, hopefully we'll be working together again soon. Yes. Thank you for having me. If you find this podcast interesting, there are many ways you can support it. You can review the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen on. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can read the show notes on michaelmoodyfitness.com. Thank you for supporting the show. Listeners like you make it worthwhile.